0: Good morning. It's good to see you. I, I told the, the first crowd, and you guys have got a little extra time than they did, but you know, for a, for a Sunday when everybody's lost an hour of sleep, you guys look bright eyed and bushy tailed. That's pretty good. I did say that to somebody this morning, and they said, Well, you might get bright eyed, but if you're looking for bushy tailed, you need to go find a squirrel. Because <laughs> they lost that hour of sleep, they were not excited about it. But nevertheless, I am glad that you. Have come this morning to be a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek, and I thank you for being with us. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we finally turn a chapter this week. We turn to chapter 2, and we are going to be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel today as we continue our series through this book. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is going to, I think you'll find it to be quite familiar. It is a passage that is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it is a passage that is a staple of Sunday morning, Sunday school literature, and you will pretty much find it in every Bible story book that you probably ever read. It's the story of a man who was brought to Jesus and with, by his four friends, and they tore open the top of the house, and they let his, this paralyzed man down to the very feet of Jesus for healing. I, I'm sure that you have heard this story and heard it preached from many different times. What I would like to, to, to bring to your attention this morning is because of where Mark places it in his gospel, what we really know is that he gives it a... It further emphasizes something to us that we've already come across in the gospel study so far. If you recall, we learned that Jesus' popularity was growing day by day. He was, he was attracting large crowds, particularly in the area of Galilee where he was ministering. And consequently, we read back in chapter 1 that the crowds of the big city of Capernaum, where Jesus sort of was his home field, that was his home turf, if we might say, that those crowds pressed in upon him continually. They were constantly bringing their sick and their diseased to him for healing. But we also have learned that Jesus was not going to be pigeonholed by the people into only being a healer and only being a miracle worker. In fact, he states... In chapter 1, verse 38, that his priority was to go throughout Galilee and to preach the gospel. He he says it this way. He says, it is for this purpose that I have come forth. And, And Mark has already given us a summary statement of what that gospel message that he went out to preach was. He told us that back in verse 15 of chapter 1. Jesus said there that the summary of the gospel message that He preached was that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what we recognize is that Jesus' agenda, really His agenda of preaching the good news of faith and repentance, it really clashed with the agenda of the people whose primary interest in Him was only to be a healer and only to be that of a miracle worker. Now, as we learned last week, Jesus did in fact leave Capernaum and he went out into the region of Galilee. He went into some towns and he began to preach in their synagogues. But we also learned of a a leper who encountered Jesus, who came to him, really broke all the rules by coming to Jesus. and, and, And he came to Jesus for healing, to be healed of his disease of leprosy. And we read there that Jesus, being moved with compassion, reached out his hand and did the unthinkable. He actually touched an untouchable. And healed him of his leprosy but then Jesus commanded the leper. said I don't want you to say anything to anybody only go to the priest and make the make the prescribed sacrifices so that you can be readmitted into society but 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 don't say anything but then we read that the man did exactly the opposite of what Jesus commanded him to do he went out and he spread far and wide the fact that Jesus Christ had healed him and had touched him and healed him of his leprosy and the result of that was as Mark tells us that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. Here again, we see the clash of these competing agendas. Mark tells us that Jesus desired to continue to enter the towns and to preach the good news of the gospel, but the desire of the people was such that they pressed in upon him to the degree that he was unable to enter those cities and to preach the gospel there. And that brings us really then to the passage that we find ourselves this morning, here in chapter 2. Because now, as most scholars believe, because Jesus had met up with such resistance to him being able to accomplish what he set out to do, that he has made his way back to Capernaum, back to the home base, really back to probably the house of, of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And there he has decided to set up his ministry there. And so that's where we pick up. Chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, we read these words. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you or... Just say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this brothers and sisters this is the word of god for the people of god let's pray together this morning father we thank you for your word that you have given to us and through which you reveal yourself to us not only do you reveal yourself to us you reveal us to us we see it in the very pages of scripture And when you do that, when you reveal yourself and you reveal us, then you also reveal our condition. And this morning, I pray that you would help us to be able to see that clearly, and that as a result of it, we would be able to apply the truth that we find here to our very lives this morning. This we pray for your glory and for your sake, in Christ's name, amen. Now, if you've been a part of Ivy Creek for any length of time, and you know me Personally, you know that I'm not one who regularly makes use of alliteration. I'm not one who typically starts all of my points with the same consonant sound. It's just not something that I typically do. But that being said, the last couple of weeks I've been pondering this passage and I've come up with a few alliterated descriptions of the various groups and people that we see in this passage. And I've just simply done it because we're all so familiar with this story. I didn't write it down on your outline, but you can hear it nonetheless. First of all, I want you to know that we are introduced in verse 2 to a very cold, congregating, and clamoring crowd. That's who we find in verse 2. Verse 3, we are introduced to the four faith-filled and fearless friends. Hang on, it gets better. Verse 6, we find the sitting, skeptical, and suspicious scribes. Now, those are the three groups that we find really introduced to us in this passage. And quite frankly, it would be tempting for us to focus our attention on them. It would be tempting for us to to look at either one or all three of them and, and to try to think about each one of them. But as we have noted all the way through our study of Mark thus far, and as will continue to be the case, when Mark writes what he writes, he is writing so that we may focus our attention on Jesus. And the questions that we continue to ask are, Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus and what does all of that mean for you and me? How are we supposed to respond in light of what this text reveals to us about Christ? And so that being said this morning, I think there's value in looking at these various groups. I think there's value in in, in trying to to expose who they were and, and, and how they responded to Jesus, but only insofar as it points us to how our response to Jesus ought to be informed. It only helps us into the degree that we are able to see Christ for who He is and what He does. That being said, my points this morning center around what we see Jesus doing in this passage, not what we see happening around Him. And so the first point that I want you to see this morning is this. What this text reveals to us is that Jesus preaches the Word. Jesus preaches the Word. You find that there in verse 2. And He preached the Word to them. Now, we noted that Jesus had come back to Capernaum and he was quite likely staying at the house of Simon Peter and and Andrew. And we see that this clamoring crowd had learned of his presence and that they had now congregated and they had pressed themselves into the house. So many of them had pressed themselves into the house, in fact, that Mark says there was no longer any room to receive them, not even near the door. So in that regard, we could add two more C's to their description. They could be the claustrophobia-creating crowd. Now, some of you know this about me, and those of you who don't, you're going to learn. I suffer from claustrophobia. I get the heebie-jeebies when you get me in a spot and I can't move around. That's why I get to stay up here and y'all get back there. (laughs) I I don't like being confined. And and even as a matter of fact, just reading what Mark writes here, that there were so many people there that they couldn't even get near the door. They couldn't move around. That kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies there. But understand, Mark didn't write this to give us the heebie-jeebies. That was not the purpose. He wrote this to tell us just how many people were coming, the popularity of Jesus and how it continued to expand. Notice what Jesus is doing, even though all these crowds are coming to him, and we already know what their agenda is, but what is Jesus doing? He is preaching the word to them. He is he's fulfilling his priority and his agenda. He is preaching a message of repentance and faith because of the coming kingdom of God. Now notice once again, though, that Jesus is interrupted in his process of carrying out that agenda. In fact, this is the third time that Jesus has been erupt, interrupted in doing what he, his priority and agenda. The first time we recognize back in Capernaum. A few sections ago, we noticed that Jesus was preaching in Capernaum and the people were saying, we've never heard anything like this. This is the most astounding thing in the world. What took place there, though, was that a demon-possessed man interrupted Jesus in the middle of him carrying out his, his priority and Jesus had to deliver that man of, demon, of the demon that possessed him. The second time we've already looked at, Jesus wanted to enter into all the different towns, into the synagogues. And there, he wanted to preach the gospel there as well, but he was interrupted from being able to fulfill that priority and agenda because of the testimony of the leper who went out and spread it far and wide that Jesus Christ had healed him of his leprosy so much so that the crowds impacted him and were not. He no longer could he enter into the cities. It's the second time. Well, here's the third time. Here we find that Jesus is gathered into this house with this congregating, claustrophobia creating, clamoring crowd when suddenly. Mark tells us that a group of four faith-filled and fearless friends show up. And they're carrying a paralytic with them. Now, I have no doubt that these four men, and we can also assume that the paralytic friend is also a part of this, had all heard about Jesus and his ability to heal. And that's the reason why they came. They came so that they could make their way to Jesus and so that they could get healing for their friend. Jesus could touch him and make him well. These men were filled with faith that Jesus could do what he had done before. They believed that he had the ability to heal. But Mark alerts us to the fact that these four faith-filled friends are confronted by the congregating and clamoring crowd who packed into this house. They couldn't get in. The doors were... were lined with people. The windows evidently had folks all in it. The, the people could not, would not part and allow these friends to get this paralyzed man to Jesus. And here's where we learn the fact that the crowd was a cold crowd. They were cold because they refused to move. Now, that tells us a little bit about how interested in themselves they were and how lack of interest they had in the fact that here was someone who really needed the touch of God, but yet they wouldn't part ways to allow him to get to Jesus but the faith-filled four would not be frustrated. They would not be denied the opportunity to see their friend healed. So they did what can only be described as potentially dangerous, certainly labor-intensive, climbing up on top of the roof of this house in order that they might get this man down to the very feet of Jesus. Their mentality was simply this, if we can't get through the door, if we can't get through the window, we'll go through the roof. We're going to get to him. Now, you should know that Palestinian homes at that time were really flat-roofed structures. What you had there was, was walls that were built up, and then you would have wooden beams that would stretch across those exterior walls. And then perpendicular to those exterior beams, you would have sticks and other things that were laid on top of that. And then that would form a grid in which they would be allowed then to bring up other smaller sticks and thatch to fill in all the spaces. And then they would bucket or pull up mud and they would stick mud and pack mud in and around allow that mud to dry. Some scholars believe that that mud could be as much as two feet thick on top of these Palestinian homes. And then on top of that, oftentimes there were tiles that were laid and many people used the tops of the roofs of their houses as really an extra living space. Many folks, that's why they would have ladders or they would have an external staircase that would lead to the very top of that house and they would spend time up there. That could be a a place where they would sleep at night or they would entertain guests. That would explain to us how these four faith-filled friends could get their paralytic friend to the top of the roof. And it shows their determination. It shows their fearlessness. Because once they got up there, what did they do? They started demolishing the roof. I mean, not only could they not get on the inside, they started damaging property. They began to pull away at the mud and at the sticks and at the thatch until they could finally get a hole in that roof. And then they really started tearing it away until they made it large enough that a person's body could fit down through that hole and get down to the feet of Jesus. And what that tells us is these guys were desperate, they weren't timid, they weren't shy about their goal, they knew, and I believe that the paralytic is part of this, they all collectively knew that if this man was to receive healing, he had to get to Jesus. That's where his hope was at. His hope was in Christ and what he would do for him. Now, let's change our view. Let's change our camera lens, if we could go that way, from looking at things from from the outside, from the the vantage point of the four faith-filled friends looking down and into the house. Let's change our camera lens to start looking like what it was like for the congregating, clamoring crowd on the inside. They're looking up, and they're seeing what's beginning to take place. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like? You know, I've been your pastor here at Ivy Creek for almost seven years. I know what it's like to stand before you week after week after week, month after month after month, now year after year, and to do what I can do to my dead level best to stay engaged with the text and to do my dead level best to keep you engaged with me. On the best day, that is a hard task to put in front of someone. It's hard for me to keep my mind focused on what's here and it's hard for me to try to keep you focused on what my mind's focused on here. Now imagine, imagine that we're here and it's a typical service, and all of a sudden the roof starts breaking up, stuff starts falling down, dirt starts falling all over me and all over you. Can you imagine the commotion that would have ensued inside that room? I think of myself, and maybe I think too much of myself, but I think of myself as someone who's able to, to put out all other distractions and to stay focused on what I'm doing, but I really don't think I could have played through that. I don't think I would have been able to make it through that moment. And I doubt very seriously many of you would have been able to make it through it either. Nevertheless, what this passage is showing us and what we need to make sure we understand is that the preaching ministry of Jesus is once again interrupted. And this time it's interrupted by a group of friends lowering a paralyzed man down on a blanket right in front of Jesus. Then we read how verse 5 begins. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Well, certainly it was the faith of the four faith-filled friends. I also believe that the, the faith of the paralytic is included here as well. He was powerless, by the way. He had no ability to do anything of his own. He's actually passive in this entire event. He's passive, he's powerless, and he's paralyzed. And he is brought to Jesus. He's, he's, he's one who all the action is done to him. It's the four friends who are doing all the physical labor. They're the ones that are bringing him to Christ. But understand this, even with all of their physical efforts, they could not heal this man of paralysis. They didn't have that ability. In that regard, they too were powerless. So consequently, what I believe that we see here is that all of them had come to the conclusion that if this paralyzed man was ever to be healed, he had to be brought to Jesus. So notice how verse 5 continues. Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So now we move from point one, where we see Jesus preaches the word, to the second point on your outline this morning, which is this. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does his response surprise you? Maybe I could ask it another way. What do you think would have been going on in the minds of those four faith-filled and fearless friends when Jesus uttered those words? I can imagine they might have been initially disappointed. I mean, after all, they had gone to great efforts, not only physically, but now it was going to cost them financially because they had just ripped open the roof of someone and they were going to have to fix it. And they've gotten there and now they're dropping him down there. I would imagine when Jesus says, Son, your friends are forgiving you, there would have been a little disappointment in their their faces because that's not why we brought him to you. That's all fine and good, but we brought him to you so that he could be healed. We want to see him walk again. We want to see him be able to take care of himself. We want to see him not be relegated to the life of a beggar, which is primarily what paralytics in that world had to do to survive. They had to beg for everything. I mean, they wanted to see their friend be able to survive and live a productive life. And from all outward appearances and perspectives, what this man needed most from their perspective was to be healed physically. But that's not where Jesus starts. In fact, initially, Jesus doesn't even really seem all that concerned about the physical condition of this man. In his commentary on this passage, Kent Hughes notes that Jesus' statement forgiving the paralytic of his sins, rather than telling him to rise and walk, may in fact seem cruel from our perspective. But Hughes notes that our Lord saw everything far more clearly than we do. Regardless of the man's physical condition, his greatest need, Hughes writes, by far was forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness was a far greater work for it ultimately cost Christ his very life. Thus, he met the man's greatest need first and eternally. Likewise, Sinclair Ferguson has written on this passage and he notes that while the man's four friends may have been initially disappointed with Jesus' response, Little did they realize that Jesus had put his finger on this man and everyone's greatest need, which is to be cleansed from the guilt of sin. One more, Donald Hagner has written in his commentary that the point of this narrative is that the problem of sin, though not as apparent to the eye as paralysis, is the fundamental problem of humanity that Jesus has come to counteract. Compared to the healings, he writes, the forgiveness of sins is by far the greater gift Jesus has brought in his ministry. So if we understand that, then we understand once again how this passage reveals to us the clash that exists between the agenda of the crowd and in this case the agenda of the the faith-filled four and how it also clashes sometimes with our own agendas of what we think. Jesus ought to be doing and the agenda that Jesus actually came to accomplish and that is to bring healing to sin-sick souls. Now notice this, if Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness of sins was unexpected and even potentially disappointing to the faith filled four, well, it was thoroughly upsetting to the sitting and skeptical and suspicious scribes. Notice verse 6 again. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I like how the fact that Mark highlights the fact that they were sitting. Because their posture, as Kent Hughes has said, betrays their attitude. He writes this. He says, as religious leaders, these scribes should have been the ones directing traffic to Jesus and to his health clinic. When the roof opened, they should have reached up to receive this poor cripple. But instead of love, there's indifference. Instead of faith, there's only criticism. Mark doesn't tell us how many scribes there were. He doesn't even tell us why they were there. We can assume Because the scribes were considered to be the guardians of Israel's traditions, you get the distinct impression that they were checking up on Jesus. I mean, after all, they probably saw Him as little more than this upstart itinerant preacher who goes around healing people and creating this crowd of people who comes to follow Him. And so they had come from all over, Luke tells us. Luke says that they had come out of every town of Galilee in Judea and Jerusalem. So we can also say that they were a sizable group of scribes. And they are there. Checking up on Jesus. So when this sizable, sitting, skeptical, and suspicious group of scribes hear Jesus tell the man's son, Your sins are forgiven you, you can just almost begin to hear the gasps, the horrid looks on their faces. Now, Mark tells us they didn't start speaking to one another, they just started thinking in themselves, in their minds. They began to think within themselves, Who is this guy? Why does he blaspheme? Now, understood this. They believed that God alone could heal a person of their sins. They recognized that sins were a personal affront to a holy God. And as David had written, had, had, had written his prayer in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Well, they understood that. And so they recognized, theologically they were correct, that only God could forgive one who had transgressed the law and wiped that slate clean. Therefore, for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven you, well, he was tacitly equating himself to God. And they recognized that as blasphemy because he was giving himself the ability to do what was only God's prerogative to do. Now, understand this. The scribes had good theology. They recognized that only God can forgive sins, but they had terrible Christology because they didn't understand who Christ was and that He truly was God. And what that tells us is is that you can have a right theological position, but yet still not have a right relationship with the God of heaven because you refuse to come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus immediately perceived in His Spirit what they were thinking, and He calls them out. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, they never talked. They were thinking it in their head, and yet Jesus could read the intent of their hearts. He could see inside them and know exactly what their thoughts were. Before the words had ever been formed on their lips, Jesus knew what they were. And he says, why? Why do, you, why do you say these things in yourself? Now that would have scared me to death. Do you realize that Jesus knows everything that you think? He sees everything that goes on inside your head, even if it doesn't come out your mouth or even if it doesn't issue forth in actions. He knows you. He knew them. He calls them out. But they seem to be unfazed by that. That didn't seem to trigger any recognition of the fact that who they were sitting in front of was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus continues to press them. He says, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk? Now that is a perplexing question, isn't it? Which is easier to say? On one hand, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven you. I mean, after all, how do you prove that it didn't happen? I mean, how do you validate somebody has been forgiven? It's, it's a verbal transition. It's, it's something that takes place between two people. But if you say, son, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, now something's got to happen. Now, now there's got to be proof. Because if he doesn't stand up and take up his pallet and walk, then, then, then obviously Jesus wasn't who he said he was. And so Jesus asked the question, which do you think is easier for me to say? Son, your sins are forgiven. You arise, take up your pallet and walk. You see, in the world in which we live, in the physical world that is, is compounded by disease and death and all kinds of things along that line, we think it's probably easier to talk about forgiveness of sins. Because after all, that happens in some unknown way that we can't visually see. For us, our understanding oftentimes is much harder for God to do something in the physical world. But think about it from the other side. What we've already learned is that it's the spiritual need of forgiveness that is infinitely more important to us than the physical need of healing. Not only that, but Jesus knew what the gospel of Mark is going to continue to reveal to us. And that is that the forgiveness of sins that He gives this man would ultimately lead Him to the cross. It would lead Him to where He would die in this man's place, suffering, this, the, suffering the pain and bearing the penalty of this man's sin. So from that perspective... It would have been infinitely easier for him to just heal the man of his physical disease and leave the forgiveness thing alone because it would have cost him less. But Jesus, desiring to prove his deity, desiring to show that he has the authority not only to heal the body but also to forgive sins, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And that leads me to the third point that I want you to see. The third thing we see Jesus doing in this passage is this. Jesus heals diseases. How do we know that the man was healed? Mark said it became evident to all. Everybody would have seen it because immediately he arose and he took up his bed and he went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. In other words, last time, the cold congregating claustrophobia creating clamoring crowd and the four faith filled fearless friends and the sizable sitting skeptical and suspicious scribes all of them were amazed because they they saw this previously powerless paralytic get up and depart praising and they saw it with their own eyes take place in front of them. See, by performing this miracle, Jesus proved for certain that he was the Son of God, that he had the power and the authority to not only cure a man of his paralysis, but he had the power and the authority to cure him of his sickness that it was infinitely worse, his sinfulness, and to heal him. And as Philip Graham Rackett has written, Jesus proves he is God the Son with power to save. You know, I was contemplating this week what it might have been like if this paralytic had been able to speak because he doesn't say anything in this passage. What if he were to walk in this room today? What do you think he would say to you and me? You see, he was the beneficiary of a double healing. You get that, right? I mean, he was was forgiven of his sins, but then he was also told to rise and take up his bed and walk. He had two miracles performed on him that day. What do you think he would say to us about those miracles if he were to come and show up today? You know, based upon what the rest of Scripture teaches us regarding the wages of sin being death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, I believe that if the paralytic were to show up today, you know what he'd say to us? he tells tell us there's no comparison between the two miracles that I got that day. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to talk about the, first, about the second one. Let's just talk about the first one. Yes, I was able to walk. I was able to leap. I was able to dance. I was able to run after I encountered Jesus that day. Yes, I was no longer a beggar and I could take care of myself. But you know what eventually happened to me in my life? Another disease came and got me. Eventually my body went away from me and I was unable to continue living and I died a physical death. But because of that first miracle that Jesus Christ performed on me that day, When I drew my last breath in this life and I closed my eyes for the last time, when I opened them, I was able to look directly into the face of the Savior who went to Calvary's cross and died for my sins, who shed His own blood so that I might live a life that I did not deserve because He suffered the penalty that I did deserve. And that's really what I want you to see this morning. You see, there is no greater miracle that Jesus ever performed than when he forgives a sinner of his sins. And no matter what you may imagine to be the greatest thing that could ever happen to you, no matter what you may think your single greatest need is, I want you to know that the single greatest blessing that you could ever receive is to be forgiven of your sins to know that you know that you know that you have been redeemed and that your relationship with God has been completely restored. And friends, such a blessing is not something that you could ever earn or that you could ever do for yourself. In that regard, you're just like this paralytic. You are powerless to save yourself. You are passive in that you cannot do it. Only God can do it for you through his son, Jesus. Forgiveness is not something that you can purchase. Forgiveness is something that Jesus Christ has purchased for you by His blood on the cross. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. The foremost and greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs is the forgiveness of sins because it meets the greatest need, brings the greatest blessing, and costs the greatest price. Here's the question that's before all of us this morning. The question that we have to grapple with is this. Have you been the recipient of that miracle? Have you been pardoned of your sins? Has Jesus Christ saved you and forgiven you just as he pardoned that paralytic? If not, then you need to know this this morning. He offers that pardon to you. If you will repent of your sins, confess him as Lord. Believe upon Him. Trust in Him to save you. Your pardon will only come as a result of the fact that Jesus Christ died to make you whole through His atoning work. The question is, will you trust in Him? Now you may say, I have, Pastor. Then let me ask you this. Is your faith such that you are doing everything within your power to bring others to Jesus who need to experience that same forgiveness? I mean, when you honestly assess your attitudes and when you assess your actions, do you identify more with the faith-filled four who are fearless? Or, if you're honest, are you more like those sitting scribes who just sat around suspicious, skeptical, and didn't try to help anybody else? Maybe you're like the cold, congregating crowd who, though there's needs all around you, You're not doing much to move out of the way to help them get to Jesus. Here's what I know. This text stands as a witness to you today that in light of who Jesus is, in light of the great salvation that He has come to offer, in light of the greatest miracle that He will ever perform, which is forgiveness of sins, then you must repent of your sins and believe in the gospel and you must be engaged in bringing others to Jesus to receive that same miracle. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray.